But we're in this series I've been enjoying so much, and uh, we're almost done. Uh, but today, uh, the, 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 uh, the four pillars of financial strength, we're going to be in Romans chapter 13. And uh, I want to ask you to turn your Bible there, turn your Bible there or you know, get out your, uh, your phone or your tablet. And Romans chapter 13. So I'll tell you a story real quick. My senior year of football, uh, we were having a really good season kind of early in the se- early in the year. We were ranked in the top 10 in the state. Lots of good things were happening. And then uh, about, I don't know, three or four weeks into the season, three or four games into the season, man, one of my teammates uh, shows up. I played defensive line with him, and he shows up to practice. He's having a terrible practice, and he looks, he looks tired. He looks worn out. And uh, I, 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 I asked him, I said, man, what's wrong with you, dude? You're having a lousy practice. And he said, he said, dude, a bunch of us went out last night, and we were at a party. We drank a bunch, and then the cops showed up. And they started banging on the door. This is like midnight or one in the morning. And then, uh, you know, man, all of us are on the football team, man. We ran out the back door. We didn't get caught drinking, you know, because, you know, we'd get kicked off the team, right? And so we ran out the back door. And, man, the cops were out there, and they were kind of in the alley. So we took off. We ran. We scattered all around the alley. He said, we were running from the cops for like two hours. I was, I was hiding in backyards. I was hiding in alleys, you know, trying to stay away from the cops. I finally got, I finally lost them. And he said, then I had to walk home. He said, I didn't get home till like three or four in the morning. He said, so I'm beat. And I'm listening to all this. And a little later, there's a, that group of about five or six guys over in one corner. And uh, we had a little, bit of a, a little bit of a break there in practice. And they were just cutting up and laughing, talking about the night before. I just remember I got so discouraged. You know, we have a game in two days. Five of my teammates are out running around and drinking. They're getting like four hours of sleep. You know, there was a core group of us on the team, man. We were willing to do whatever it took to be good. You know, in the off season, in season, whatever mattered, we did it. And the moment, that moment, I remember I realized that, man, not everybody on my team was who I thought. And when our season kind of started to slide after that, we went on this long losing streak. I knew talent wasn't the problem. But character was the problem. And so the fourth pillar of financial strength is this whole idea of character. Now, character is a word a lot of people really hope will be used to describe them. I mean, I think most of us would say, I hope that someday, uh, you know, people are going to say he was a man of character. She was a woman of character. But it can be very vague. But one thing everybody does agree on is that character is that quality that separates one individual from another. We can be spoken of as having a a weak character or a strong character, a bad character or a good character. We can have a great deal of character or no character at all. And you think of character as the component uh, within the soul of each person that kind of dominates their, their thoughts and more importantly, their actions. What are the appetites, the cravings, the beliefs, the values, the convictions? That drives a man or a woman to do what they do. And one of the most uh, effective ways of describing what something is, is to kind of explain what it's not. And that's kind of what the Apostle Paul does here in this passage. And so I want you to look with me at Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Keeping in mind the context here that at this time in Roman history, the Roman government was incredibly corrupt and society was so unfair. The people were heavily taxed. There were taxes on everything. Something like one-third to almost one-half of your income went to some kind of government taxes and fees. 
And to make matters worse, the middle class was being heavily taxed while the wealthy had created loopholes and gotten themselves out of taxes. Does that sound somewhat familiar? Okay. And the people are angry about it. And so Paul actually has to bring this up in his letter to the Christians in Rome and talk about this topic. And he's led by the Spirit of God to address the Christians' relationship to government, specifically taxes and the money that governments require of their people. So he says in verse 8, Oh, nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, and therefore it is the fulfillment of the law. What's happening here? He realizes that that the, the Christians in Rome, they're consumed with anger, but the problem isn't really the Roman government. He realizes that it's how the Roman Christians are responding to government corruption, government largesse, you might say, and that this kind of boils down to being a character issue. What he sees is he sees, he sees covetousness in their hearts. This is why they're so angry. And you know, there's envy and there's materialism. You know, they're so in love with the things of this world. Those are the things that are dominating people's thoughts. And so what he's going to do here is he's going to paint a very vivid portrait using some very passionate words to kind of portray to you and me what a man or woman of God must be like. And he addresses the character that God's holy people must possess. And the imagery he uses is really powerful because it's the imagery of a Roman soldier. Look at verse 11. He says, And this do, knowing that the time is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone. The day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. You kind of see the wording there. It kind of feels like clothing. Lay aside that clothing of the deeds of darkness and then put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, sexual promiscuity, sensuality, strife and jealousy, but put on, or you might say, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. All right. You see, soldiers bear a huge responsibility that's uh, to be your best in order to protect the lives of those that you defend. And a soldier needed to be alert, needed to be properly trained, physically ready when the time came. Kind of like my teammates that I was talking about a little while ago. But some Roman soldiers, as soldiers frequently do, they're more like frat boys than fighting men. And uh, they would have these drinking bouts, you know, one trying to outdo the other to see who could drink the most and still be on his feet. And all through the night, you see this drunkenness going on with the Roman soldiers. And now the dawn was coming. And what comes with the dawn is battle. They got to be ready for battle. And then the, as the dawn awakens, order comes, wake up, throw off your civilian clothes, strap on your armor, get ready for battle. The, image, the enemy is approaching. Be alert, be ready. And the idea here that Paul is trying to say to you and me is that don't be the soldier who's been mastered by his lower nature, the flesh, all right, like my teammate was. 
Don't be a slave to your urges, your impulses, your appetites, because then when the battle comes, you're going to be woefully unprepared. And that soldier who's been drinking all night and partying all night, he's groggy, he's intoxicated, he's still in his civilian clothes when the trumpet sounds, and he's weak and he's vulnerable. And so Paul is saying, face the reality of what it means to be a soldier. You are in a war, so to speak. This is no place for drinking pina coladas in your pajamas, you know, is what he's trying to say. Be disciplined, be alert, be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 5, he says, I'm sorry, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, he says, Suffer with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. I got that reference wrong. I apologize. I apologize for that. Look at verse 13, where he says, let us behave properly as in the day. That word there, that that we have two words, behave properly. It's just one word in the Greek. And it literally means be well-formed or be in good shape. And we've all been there, haven't we? We've seen somebody who's really drunk, you know, just kind of staggering. They're barely making it. And we say, wow, that guy's in bad shape. Okay, that's kind of the idea here. Be in good shape. And it means to live, a ma- and live your life in a manner that is worthy of honor, worthy of admiration, and this is important, worthy of imitation. That you know, young people, other men, other women look at you and say, I need to be more like them. To be the kind of man or woman that God created you to be, a person who has the character of Christ. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul says this, You know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. We were encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you to his kingdom and glory. And I don't know, when you read that, I don't know how that affects you. That stirs my heart so much when I read something like that. Live a life worthy of God, because he has called you to his kingdom, and his glory. He said in verse 12, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness. What are those deeds of darkness? He lists them out for us here. There's carousing. What does that word mean? It's a group of friends who get together. It's going to be like Super Bowl next week, right? Man, they're drinking, they're hooping, they're hollering. You remember Jason Kelsey last week in the playoffs? You know, he's got a shirt off and he, he said he drank about 40 Bud Lights that day. That's carousing, okay, when his brother caught a football. And it means joining the crowd, you know, doing what everybody else is doing just because everybody else is doing it. And I want you to think about this. How much of what you and I do in our lifetimes is because we want the approval of our peers. We want, we want the admiration of the crowd. Men and women of character, they're not slaves to the crowd. Peer approval is not really a concern for them. I used to say this a lot when I was a youth pastor. You know, we kind of think of peer pressure as a problem for kids that are teenagers. No, it never goes away. And I used to tell my kids all the time, hey, your mom and dad are facing peer pressure every bit as much as you are. Peer pressure, or you might call peer dependency, it never goes away. Then there's drunkenness. This word was used in the Greek to describe binge drinking or, or blackout drinking, drinking until you're unconscious. And you know, the image here is of like, you know, manly men you know, drinking huge volumes of alcohol because a man can hold his liquor. In reality, 
No, not at all. It's actually a form of cowardice because you're using alcohol as a means of escape. You're running from your current reality and you want to get away from it because you can't really handle it. And I want you to think about this. How much of what we, we drink, uh, we pop, we buy is because we're trying to escape our current reality. Men and women of character, they don't run from their reality. They engage the reality that they're living in and they change it for the better according to the will of God. They mentioned sexual promiscuity. The idea behind this word is lusting for something that's forbidden. Not necessarily just in the sexual arena, but really in almost any arena. And think about how often we lust for things that we don't own and we go out and we borrow money or we rent money from other people to have those things that we don't have that we know is kind of forbidden. And it's a self-indulgence in the passions of the flesh without really thinking about the honor that is associated with having that thing or the rightness of having that thing. And then he mentioned sensuality. It's just living at the mercy of the moment, okay? If it feels good at the moment, then that's what I'm gonna do. That's the idea here. You abandon your sensibility for the sake of your sensuality. I'll say that one more time. You abandon your sensibility for the sake of your sensuality. Then the last one he mentioned, I'm sorry, the second to last one is strife. What does that mean? It's an unwillingness to be second. All right, I have to be first. My opinion matters more than anybody else. I'm going to have it my way or no way. And I want you to just stop and think with me for a moment. Does anything cause more strife in our relationships, especially in our homes, than disputes over money and possessions? You know, when I was raising my kids, man, anytime I gave one thing to another, one kid and something else to another, they had to have the other thing the other person had, you know? It was just insane. It didn't matter. It's just if somebody else had it, I wanted it, you know? And I think you know this, that the number one cause for divorce in this country is financial strife. Did you know that a couple who has $10,000 in debt with no savings is two times more likely to divorce than a couple with no debt and 10,000 in savings. Did you catch that? When there's no security blanket, there's nothing to break your fall, it creates incredible insecurity in the marriage and you're twice as likely to divorce. Couples with high incomes divorce just as frequently as couples with modest incomes. Just watch The Hollywood Reporter. You can see that's always true. Strife doesn't go away just because you have more money, all right? Making more money will not make the arguing go away. Strife is a character issue. And by the way, I want to just mention this real quickly. Opposites attract when it comes to money, you know? Ask my wife. And there's a great, greater chance than not that if you're married, you married somebody who has a different money style than you do, all right? One freely spends and gives, kind of a free spirit, and the other wants to save and build wealth, all right? And the tension and resentment, they kind of build on both sides of this equation. The spender and the giver, they feel kind of trapped in a, you know, kind of a joyless, predictable marriage with no real goals or aspirations, no, no fun, no joy, you know? And the saver, 
They feel like they're bound to an immature partner who's going to bring disaster on the family. And so how do you solve this problem? Humility. Humility is a really powerful character trait. Couples with character learn to appreciate their differences. And they work together as one. One. It's so, so important. God brought you together. If you're the saver, God brought you the spender to bring you more joy, you know, more spontaneity in your life. And if you're the free spirit, God brought me Melanie to make sure I don't kill myself and lose everything, okay? That's why she's there. And it works out really, really good. All right? And jealousy. Oh, by the way, that's true of our elders too, by the way. So we don't have broke as a church. That's why we have the elder board that we have. Jealousy. The word is rooted in the Greek for hot boiling water. Look at that word jealousy. Imagine a a boiling pot of water and that water's turbulent and it's just violent and it's just rolling over the top. And that's how the spirit is in a person who's jealous. They're just turbulent inside. There's no serenity. There's no tranquility. I have to have more. I have to have what they have because of envy and jealousy. Proverbs 14.30 says, A contented heart gives life to the flesh, but envy rots the bones. It rots you on the inside. Contentment is also an attribute of character. Humility, absolutely. Also contentment. Because it's the outward expression of a tranquil soul. And it's the exact opposite of the turbulence and the violence we feel inside when we're jealous and envious. That's why Hebrews 13.6 says, Make sure your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. Notice it doesn't say, make sure your life is free from money. That's not what he said. Just make sure your character is free from the love of it. Don't love that thing. And so our salvation empowers us to be like Christ, to live out the character of Christ with wisdom and honor and righteousness. Be the soldier you were saved to be, Paul is saying here. Live like the soldier of God that you are. Titus chapter 2, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. And it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions than to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. When you see the word godly, it means godlike, a life like God. Take on the character of God. That's what that word means. Look at verse 14. So Paul says, put aside those deeds of darkness. Put aside the carousing and the drunkenness and the jealousy. Put all that aside. And he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. And so think of the soldiers in a Roman military camp, knowing there was a battle the next day. Most of the soldiers were going to join in with the crowd. The drunkenness, the envy, the fighting, the strife, gratifying the flesh. And then the dawn breaks. The enemy is approaching. It's time for battle. And they're clumsy, and they're groggy, and they're poorly dressed. They're still in their pajamas, right? They don't have a chance. They don't have a chance against the enemy that they're facing. But a small minority of the soldiers, they don't get drunk. They don't fight. They don't follow the crowd. They're men of character. And when the dawn breaks and the bugle sounds, because the enemy is approaching, Their swords are sharp. Their minds are sharp because they're rested 
and they're dressed in armor, ready for battle. And when they have to engage the enemy, they're strong, they're able, right? And they're skilled as men of character and women of character should be. And that is the picture Paul has here for you and me. When he says, put on the armor of light, put on Christ, put on, clothe yourselves in the character of Christ. Colossians chapter three, you have stripped off your old sinful self and the things that you did before. When you put your faith in Christ to be your savior, the old man was stripped off. You were given a a new power. You were given a new spirit. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus and you have new clothes. But then he says, now put on the new person. We have to put them on in which you are being made into the true knowledge of God, becoming like the one who created you. Isn't that powerful again? Becoming like God. If you know Christ as your Savior, you are covered in Christ's righteousness. But now, he says, in a practical way, put on the character of Christ. Clothe yourself in his character. You say, Les, I'd love to do that, but I don't know how. How do you do it? Well, I'm not someone that really thinks very much about clothes. And you're all going, yeah, I know, we see. Yeah, we can tell. All right. We've noticed. I love plaid, you know. I've been wearing plaid shirts for like 35 years, probably. Long, I have a closet full of long sleeve, button down plaid shirts. And uh, Melanie's just given up. I mean, she really has. She's tried to get me other things before. And I'll be, I'll be like walking through like a department store, like Dillard's or something like that. And I'll say, oh, look at this great shirt I found. She's like, Les, it's plaid. You know, and he's like, you yeah, have plaid already. I said, yeah, but I don't have this plaid. This is an amazing plaid. And sometimes I'll get dressed and I'll ask Melanie and say, how does this look? And she's always very diplomatic, you know. I think we can do better, you know, something like that. (laughs) And so I often get Melanie's approval for the clothes that I wear. But here's the thing. I have to put clothes on. I've never opened up my closet and all of a sudden it's like, you know, the clothes just come on your body. It's like, wow, I look good. Man, I look great, right? There's a process there. I have to do it as an act of my will I have to choose to put on clothes. I have to choose to clothe myself. And some of you probably go to the closet and you probably stand there a long, long time, like looking and thinking, like, what should I wear? You know, how should I put it on? Et cetera, et cetera. It's the same idea to put on Christ. You got to, as an act of your will, choose to put on Jesus every day. And by the way, you're clothing yourself in Christ right now. You're putting on the armor of light right now. You're here in community with God's people. You've been worshiping God. You've taken communion. You're listening to God's word being taught. You got dressed twice today. Good job. You did really, really good. But what would life be like if you only got dressed one day a week? Your life would get really hard, wouldn't it? It'd be really, really tough. What would life be like if you were constantly underdressed, poorly dressed, badly dressed, okay? What would life be like then? What would life be like if you went on a day like today in shorts and a tank top? Be a hard life. Life would be tough. Les, I thought this series was about finances. What What does all this have to do with money management, you know, character and all that? Everything, everything. You and I cannot go out into this world system, this crazy economy, that's built around borrowed money 
and survive if we're poorly dressed, not ready to fight, ready to go to battle. Peter said this in 1 Peter 2.11, Dear friends, your real home is not here on earth. You are strangers here. I ask you to keep away from all the sinful desires of the flesh, the things that fight to get a hold of your soul. Powerful image, isn't it? These things fight to get a grip on your very heart and take hold of you and not let go. And so we can't go out into this world with its tests and its temptations without any armor, still in our pajamas, you know, full of pina coladas, right? No, your time, your energy, your money, your very life will be plundered if you don't get yourself dressed for battle, if you don't take on the character of Christ. Your time, your energy, your money, your very life will be just the spoils of war. I love what John MacArthur said about this passage. He said, this is not a time to be indulging oneself in things which pander the flesh. This is a time for serious living. It's time to put on Christ. And as you pour yourself into the word of God and see Christ revealed, as you spend time with him in prayer, he will transform you by his Holy Spirit into his own image. Hmm. There's a book that had a huge impact on my life by a guy named Charles Swindoll. It's called Rising Above the Level of Mediocrity. And I have this page dog-eared twice at the bottom and at the top. And I love this. He says this, The world needs men who cannot be bought, but whose word is their bond, who put character above wealth, who do not hesitate to to take chances, who will not lose their individuality in a crowd, who will be as honest in small things as in great things, who will make no compromise with wrong, whose ambitions are not confined to their own selfish desires, who will not say they do it because everybody else does it, who are true to their friends in adversity as well as prosperity, who do not believe that shrewdness, cunning, and greed are the way to success, who are not ashamed or afraid to stand for the truth when it is unpopular, who can say no when all the rest of the world says yes. Your character is all about what you have the strength to say no to and you have the strength to say yes to. So yes, despite what you might hear out in the culture, character matters. Character matters. Proverbs 25, 28 says, like a city that is broken into and without walls, is a man who has no control over his spirit. Hmm. That's where we don't want to be. All right? Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you have put so much of yourself uh, into us and around us and just made it possible for us to clothe ourselves in you, Lord Jesus, and display your character in this world that we live in. And Lord, I just ask today that there might be someone whose heart has been moved or encouraged, Lord, to to walk in a different character perhaps than they have before. And Lord, I just thank you so much that you make that possible. And so, Father, I just pray that for all of us here, that you would give us a vision of what it means to walk in the character of Jesus, to clothe ourselves with Jesus on a daily basis. And I pray, Lord, you just give us the strength to get there every day, to clothe ourselves with Christ, And so, Lord, I just ask for your protection, your shelter over us. 
in this world that we live in. Teach us what it means to put on the armor of light and lay aside the deeds of darkness. We ask this for your glory and your fame today, Jesus. Amen. Amen.